Good morning, LOH. We're beginning a new series this morning called Excalibur. I brought mine with me today, and I hope over the next few weeks, if you haven't started yet to bring your Bible, you will bring your Bible with you. And uh, because this entire month, we are going to be focused on the power of God's Word. This series, Excalibur, is going to be talking about uh, the Word of God being the place where we find and uh, achieve our destiny. And uh, as we've been doing over the last few weeks, I want to start, uh, start this morning with an introductory picture of a few people here that are familiar to me. Um, this, this is us, uh, the three McGees, the three McGees. We are members of our own roundtable. And uh, my son, uh, Devin, actually became king for a day at Disney Orlando um, a long time ago when he was probably about Zeke Wharton's age. And uh, uh, due to the fact that Merlin the Magician, who, who lives there at Disney Orlando, um, picked Devin McGregor out of the crowd to come up to see if he could pull the sword out of the stone. And I watched my son uh, pull the sword out of the stone. An impossible feat. But it did take place, and I, T. McGee, have the video evidence to prove that it happened. They marched him all around the park after placing a medallion on him and a king's hat. Uh, yeah, the sword, the sword in the stone, uh, the story has a special place in my heart and in my son Devin's heart, and I'm certain will have a special place in my grandson Graham's heart, too. Um, well, we have great memories. I'll tell you a little story about this picture. Um, Devin and I uh, had some historic uh, uh, sword battles back at Castle McGee as Deb grew up and I grew old. Um, we had intense sword battles. And this past Father's Day, I felt it was my duty to uh, pass the sword on. And so uh, here, Graham has his first sword. And uh, I intentionally bought him a Nerf sword because Devin and I used these plastic ones. And those babies, when they strike your knuckles, hurt like heck. I'm not kidding you. I remember one time particularly, uh, Devin and I were getting at it. And I, by accident, and I promise it was by accident, struck him across the knuckles. And Devin was like, ouch, you got my nickels. <laughs> Excalibur. The place of God's word in achieving your destiny. Excalibur is the name of the sword discovered by Arthur as a young man. Um, and uh, I've titled this series Excalibur because I want to talk about the power of the word of God and how your destiny and my destiny, and actually the destiny of every living soul since the Garden of Eden, is recorded in this book. It's the destiny of God's church recorded in this book. And it reveals how you and I can discover God's truth, God's life, God's light as we open ourselves to it. Today, I want to take us back to the start uh, of the gospel and then travel through time to our time. And my prayer is that you and I will gain, maybe for the first time, an appreciation for the sacrifice made to get this living sword 
this living word into your life and into my life, into our church, and hopefully into this nation again, so that the word of God will be revered and honored today in the United States of America and in Western civilization as it was at one time hundreds of years ago. For that to take place, we need a mighty move of the Holy Spirit of God. And we need that Spirit of God to move with us today. Would you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you ordained in my life the opportunity to hear and study and be taught the Word of God from my childhood. I thank you that people have paid the ultimate price to get the Bible to America and into the churches that meet today, into the homes of people all over this country. We ask you, Lord, in your mercy, because none of us deserve it, in your mercy, Grant us by your grace a fresh honor, reverence, hunger, and passion to get our eyes, our faces, our hearts into your book. Holy Spirit, you are the helper. Help us today in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, amen. Welcome, uh, live stream uh, guests today. We love you, with you today. May God bless you too. The legend of King Arthur. My son is a history, uh, I was going to say expert. He wouldn't want me to, but I think he is. Um, He's been reading uh, since he's been, uh, well, fourth, fifth grade. And uh, he is a... Would, would do a, a way better job of introducing to you this, the motif of Excalibur uh, from the legend of King Arthur. Uh, so I don't have time to do that. Uh, he could do it in, in, a, in a good uh, time frame and, and get us right on point. And, uh, uh, but I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just really, really simplify it. Uh, Arthur was led to the discovery of the sword. And the discovery of the sword, which was named Excalibur, led Arthur to his destiny. And it's a great story, a great legend. It's awesome. I want to use that motif throughout the month as we talk about the Word of God. But today, my message is titled, Echoes of the Dead. Echoes of the Dead. The Bible that, well, let me say, if, I was in, if this was a church in 1970, I would say, the Bible that you hold in your hand... I hope we can get back to that, where I can say that and people don't go, what? The Bible that you hold in your hand, that's what they would have said. The Bible came to us from passionate people who loved God, loved the Word of God, loved Jesus so much that they gave their lives to make sure this Bible, this eternal message would get to us. I want to ask you to listen For the voices this morning, hear their voices, hear the stories, and listen, because they are calling us to pick up the book, 
They are calling us back to the Bible. The Bible, the book and only book that has power in it. Life-changing power for an individual, for a civilization, for a family, for a household, and yes, even for a church. This book came into my hand from people who made the greatest sacrifice. Let's talk about it. Luke talks about the eyewitnesses of the story of Jesus and says that he was writing an account of Jesus Christ based on a historical uh, research by the eyewitnesses and those who heard them. Here's what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. There's a great book out today by an author named Richard Bauckham. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I highly recommend this book. I believe it's going to prove to be one of the most important works written in our time. Um, it's about, it's about uh, authenticating the, the validity of the scriptures, the gospels, as being what the eyewitnesses of Jesus really said. Here's a few passages from the book that I wanted to share with you. For instance, talking about what Luke is referring to about how he researched to, to begin to compile his gospel. He says, anyone who was converted to become a follower of Jesus could and did tell their story. A convert would tell his wife and she would get converted. And someone else would get converted from her conversion. And then they would go and tell their business partner. And if he got converted, he would take a business trip to another city until his business associate was also converted from the story. And if he converted, he would tell his wife. If she converted, she would tell her neighbor, and on and on and on. Bacham says, who then was telling the stories about Jesus? Just the apostles? It can't have been just the apostles. It was, as Luke said, the gospel material was not handed down 5th or 6th or 19th hand, but rather by the eyewitnesses themselves. Bauckham goes on to talk about the historians of the 1st century and prior to the 1st century during the Greek and Roman uh, civilization uh, beginnings. Secular Greek and Roman historians spoke of something that they called the living voice. And basically what the Greek and Roman secular historians meant by that was they, what they wrote, they would claim was the authenticity of it was backed because what they wrote came from first-hand eyewitness testimony. Josephus, Polybius, Galen. I don't know if he's related to me or not. That's my first name too. Probably a little bit smarter in math than I am. Seneca and Thucydides, none of them, none of them would have considered second generation and beyond accounts weighty enough to write down in their records. 
Luke uses the same Greek word that they used, anakesis, when he's talking about compiling his gospel. The word anakesis literally means to interrogate a living witness. What Luke is saying is, as the ancient historians would as well, considering that the only that only the, the history of time uh, would be recorded by these men during what was called a living voice, meaning that they had actually and adequately researched and recounted all of the words said by those who witnessed history happening themselves. If it came second, third, they would not consider it valid to put it in. That was how the secular historians did during the Greek and the Roman empires, and Luke said, I did the same thing as well. Luke is saying, along with the others, that what you have comes from eyewitness accounts of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. I want to take you quickly on a history journey that starts in 60 AD and goes up to... uh, what we would consider our modern time, because I want to share with you not just basically the, the, the whole history of how we got our Bible, but more specifically, how we got this Bible in the English language to us. Okay? So in 60 AD, most conservative scholars say that the Greek manuscripts of the, of the, of the New Testament were already written. There were 27 books in all. In 390 AD, one of a follower of Jesus by the name of Jerome, he's known as St. Jerome today, he put together a Bible called the Latin Vulgate. It was a translation of the Bible, and it was produced and widely circulated throughout the, the, the world at that time. By 500 AD, they tell us that scriptures had been translated into over 500 languages, but... Within 100 years, as the, as the Roman Catholic Church took great power, they only allowed the scriptures to be written and spoken and dispersed in Latin. It was close to three, over 300 years after that that the Anglo-Saxon translations of the New Testament were produced. Anglo-Saxon were the early roots of the English language which we speak. It was centuries that went by before a man came on the scene who was called the morning star of the Reformation. His name was John Wycliffe. A lot of the stuff that you're going to hear that I talk about today comes from my own research, comes from some church history books I have, and also some stuff. If you've ever been to the Museum of the Bible, you know, you know how an awesome event that is. I encourage everyone to take a trip to D.C. and to spend the day in the Museum of the Bible. It's unbelievably inspiring. John Wycliffe, in 1384, was the first person to produce... Think of this. A handwritten copy of the complete Bible. He translated the Latin version himself, wrote it out by hand in the English language in the 1380s. He was a professor and a scholar from Oxford. Um, He's well known. His work of doing this, later he actually did it 12 times. Can you imagine? Twelve handwritten 
translations of the whole Bible. Man, I'll tell you what. Thank the Lord for technology, right? They were translated out of the Latin Vulgate, and it made the Pope furious. So furious that 44 years after John Wycliffe died, the Pope commanded that they dig up his bones, smash them to powder, and scatter them in the river. One of Wycliffe's disciples, John Huss, also tried to circulate the beliefs of Wycliffe. He began preaching and saying that the Bible should be interpreted into the language of the people so that, here's a thought, they could understand it. And the Roman church threatened any person who possessed a non-Latin Bible with execution. John Huss was burned at the stake in 1415, and they used Wycliffe's Bible translation pages as the kindling for the fire that burned him. Huss's last words were these, In 100 years, God will raise up a man whose calls for reform will never be able to be thwarted. And as the clock ticked down for those hundred years, some other things took place. Bill Gates was born. No, Gutenberg was born. And he invented the printing press. And the first book that be, was mass-produced on the printing press was a Bible in the Latin language. Mass-produced. There was another scholar in Oxford who was a personal physician to King Henry VII and VIII. Thomas Lineker was his name. He had learned Greek. And having read a translation of the Latin New Testament in, into Greek, Lineker said, quote, either this Greek is not the gospel or we are not Christians. The Latin had become so corrupt that it no longer even preserved the meaning of the scriptures or the message of the gospel. Yet at the time that church threatened to kill anyone who would read the scriptures in any language outside of Latin, executed. In 1496, John Collette, I didn't say Sean Collette, I said John Collette, another Oxford uh, professor, he was the son of the mayor of London. He started reading the New Testament in Greek and translating it into English for his students in London. And then he began to preach it in St. Paul's Cathedral in London in the English language. The people of London became so hungry for the Word of God that within six months, 20,000 people would pack that church. Today, St. Paul's Cathedral averages 200 people per Sunday, and most of them are tourists. How many of you would say it's not only America that needs a great awakening? And the mayor of London today has no interest in the gospel being proclaimed in London. In 1516, Erasmus produced a Greek-Latin parallel. Greek-Latin. 
compare. Hmm. In 1522, almost exactly 100 years after Huss, last words are prophesied. Martin Luther, who had translated the Latin into the German language, nailed the famous 95 issues of heresy and crimes of the Roman Catholic Church on the door in Wittenberg. Huss's prophecy had come true. A year after that, seven people were burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for the crime of teaching their children to say the Lord's Prayer in English rather than in Latin. In 1526, a man by the name of William Tyndale printed the first English New Testament. In 1535, Miles Coverdale's Bible came on the scene. It was the complete, first complete Bible printed in the English language, Old New Testament, and the, and the Apocrypha. Two years later, the Tyndale Matthews Bible came on the scene. It was done by a man by the name of John Rogers, who uh, worked under the pen name of Thomas Matthew. Because to do this meant certain death if you were caught. And not only certain death, but burned at the stake kind of death. I am not into dying, and I'm totally not into burned at the stake kind of dying. But one man, after one man, after another man, had such a passion to risk their own lives to make sure that somebody could get the Bible into the language that they were speaking so they could understand and they could hear and they could come to know God and they could come to know Jesus Christ and their life could be set free by the power of the book. In 1539, the Great Bible was printed. The first English Bible authorized for the public. And I love this one. The Geneva Bible was printed in 1560, and it was the first Bible to add numbered verses. Hallelujah! <laughs> and in 1611, the wonderful King James Bible was printed. So if you knock the King James, know from where it came. There wouldn't be whatever you're reading or I'm reading today if it hadn't been for these other translations. And let me just go on else to say, go on to say this as well. If you read the life stories of many of these men, their theology wasn't exactly perfect. And what do you mean by exactly perfect? Well, whatever is contrary to what your theology is. Because yours is perfect. I want to go back to a couple of these guys for a minute. The sacrifice made to get the Bible into the English language was tremendous. Wycliffe, Huss, Tyndale, Luther... Coverdale to Rogers, all were persecuted for translating the scriptures simply from taking the Bible from the Latin to the English. Tyndale did it in 1516 and, 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 and spread this out. Tyndale was eventually strangled and, uh, and, and burned at the stake. 
for the New Testament coming into the English language. Tyndale's last words were these, O Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that King of England was Henry VIII. I want to tell you how God can work. King Henry VIII funded the printing of the great Bible, the English Bible. And let me tell you why he did it. It had nothing to do with godliness. But God used an ungodly king. King Henry VIII asked the Pope for permission to divorce his wife and marry his mistress, and the Pope said no. And King Henry VIII thought, well, you know what? I'm king, and so I'm going to do it anyway. And at the same time, I'm going to execute two of my other wives. And by the way, to add, on, add to that, I'm going to thumb my nose at the Pope, renounce the Roman Catholic Church, take England under my control, and start my own church called the Anglican Church. So when you say, well, I'm Anglican, <laughs> thank God for the Anglican Church and every other church, but make sure you realize it didn't come from the upper room of Pentecost. It came from Henry VIII's bedroom. A new branch of the Christian church. <laughs> King Henry VIII, to defy the wishes of the Pope, said, you know what? We're going to have our own Bible, and it's going to be in the English language. I'm so tempted right now, but I'm going to say it this way. And, we're, and I'm going to pay for it myself. Heathen, ungodly king. God used to keep moving this Bible to Moss Avenue. Heathen, womanizing, wife murderer, not just a wife beater, murderer. Is that right? Nope. But I'm glad. Hey, if God could only use right people, we'd be in big trouble. After King Henry went on his way, King Edward VI arose to the throne, and his wife was Queen Mary. Oh, blessed Queen Mary. Nope, Bloody Mary. Because her main goal was to stamp out the English Bible and made it a crime with the penalty of being burned at the stake for simply being a Protestant. I'm glad that the Protestants of that day didn't water down the faith and try to get up close and nice with Queen Mary and produce a seeker-sensitive type of approach, we would have never had this book. I want to drop back and give you a quote from the Pope against John Wycliffe. This was found in the Church Chronicle 1395. Here's what the Pope thought of Wycliffe, the, the morning star of the record, quote, this pestilent and wretched John Wycliffe, that son of the old serpent, 
endeavoring by every means to attack the very faith and sacred doctor of holy church, translated from Latin into English, the gospel. Indeed, all of the scriptures that Christ gave to the clergy and doctors of the church. Not to you. So that by this, his means, it has become vulgar and more open to laymen and women who can read it than it usually is to quite learned clergy of good intelligence. And so the pearl of the gospel, indeed of the scriptures in toto, is scattered abroad and trodden underfoot by swine. Not everything the church accuses you of is coming from the throne of God. It was because of the passion and the courage of these great men of God, imperfect, that America, America had such a glorious beginning in spite of her moral imperfections then that some are still uh, carrying today. In spite of that, Western civilization and America specifically owes much of her blessings and freedoms to these men that most people have never heard of. Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Cramner, Coverdale, Tyndale, who passed the baton of the scriptures to those who came to this land. Many, not all, but many of our founding fathers were salty believers who were part of the founders, salt in a good sense, salt of the earth, light of the world, salty believers in the midst of the founding fathers, and they believed that the Bible was the word of the living God. Our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and the freedoms we know, the freedoms that have evolved, come from the convictions born from the written words of God handed down by men who were literally torched by ungodly kings, but remained faithful because they were torched by the fire that came from the spirit of the one who wrote this book. This English Bible that we have was a torch in the hands of godly men used to set the colonies on fire for God. One of our founding fathers, John Adams, said this, The Christian religion is, above all the religions that ever prevailed or existed in ancient or modern times, the religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. Can you imagine... One of the Democrats that's running for office in 2020 saying that. Can you imagine Trump saying that? And to be quite frank with you, whether you like him or not, he's probably the only one that would. And I'm not meaning that anything that he's, I'm not saying anything about it, but uh, that's the only one I can think of that might say. Now, you may say, well, he said it. He's only trying to get the boat of the evangel. I don't know what, but I'm just telling you the only one. I guarantee you no one else would even think to say that. That's hate speech. That's arrogance. Unless it's coming from an illumination after being exposed to it. 
John Adams went on to say, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia. What a paradise would this region be. And then he said this, can you imagine anyone saying this today in the political arena? I have examined all, this is the founding father. I have examined all religions and the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. That would be the end of you. You would be out, Jack. <laughs> You'd be gone. Did you hear what that idiot said? What a hater. Um, <laughs> George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers that ever walked planet Earth, was an evangelist during the Great Awakening. Here's what he said about the Bible. If we once get above our Bibles and cease making the written word of God our sole rule, both as to faith and practice, we shall soon lie open to all manner of delusion and be in great danger of making shipwreck of faith and a good conscience. Benjamin Franklin said the greatest communicator ever heard in his life on any shore was George Whitfield. D.L. Moody a great evangelist prior to the Civil War, said the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. St. Augustine, who lived in the 300, 300 A.D., much of Western civilization has been influenced by St. Augustine, and most people don't even know who he is, he wrote a book called The City of God where when the Roman Empire began to be corrupt and, 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 and disintegrate, he imagined the church as a spiritual city of God, and he wrote about that in, in a distinction from the material earthly city, very profound. I don't agree with everything Augustine believed at that time, but it was, it was out of Augustine's book called On the Trinity that the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople leaned upon as their source reference to search the scriptures about seeing it, the, tri the triune Godhead. That's who this guy was. Many Protestants and, and their views of salvation and divine grace from Luther to Calvin and others. Luther himself was of the order of the Augustinians. Uh, he, they all saw Augustine in great preeminence as one of the early church fathers with great rock-solid theology. But he wasn't always a godly man. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book, I have it down in my office, called The Confessions of St. Augustine, talking about his very, 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 very ungodly life as a kid and as a teenager and a young man. But here is a testimony of his conversion. I was saying these things. He was talking about being in su such a place of contrition and guilt in his heart. The Holy Spirit was working on him. I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it. Pick it up. Read it. Augustine felt it was a sign from God to open up the scriptures. For instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. I want to close with this. Guys, come on up. We're just starting. I'll look you right in the eye. Lifeway Publishers just did a poll 
Lifeway is an evangelical, very conservative, heavily Baptist-oriented Christian publishing organization. So this poll probably went out into the evangelical world more than anywhere else. Only 32% responded yes to this question. I read the Bible faithfully on a weekly basis. So we're talking about the Bible Belt Bible Believing Club here. 11% said, I read the Bible maybe once or twice a month. Pick it up and read it. Better than that, pick it up and let it read you. The Bible will not make you godly just by reading it. But I guarantee you, you'll never become godly if you don't. And the only way to be ungodly is to let the Bible read you. Let it have a surgical strike in your soul. Pick it up and believe it. I was blessed to have a father and a mother who took me to a church that believed in the Bible, Memorial Heights Baptist Church. God love them. There wasn't a week went by that Millie Robinette and Diane Higson, Sonia's mom, and Violet Plummer wouldn't teach us the Bible, a little concrete block room, wooden. We'd sit around a desk. He was a salesman. And we'd come in there every week. He'd throw us a pack of Wrigley Spearmint gum and a Bible. Acts 1, middle school kids. Wasn't very exciting. I don't hardly think I was excited when we did it, but we read it. I was taught the Bible. I went to a church that believed that God sent his son to be the savior of the world, and I was taught that from my childhood. I didn't know when I was a little kid who I would become. More accurately, I didn't know who God knew I would become. But I felt the Holy Spirit at different times in my life as a little boy growing up in that church. Anybody burn out on Shine Kids Ministry yet? See me after. Re, 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 watch this later today to be on live stream. Anybody burn out with ministering to kids in our church? Tired? How much does it matter to you that our kids? Grow up knowing this book. Wouldn't it be amazing if some of our kids grew up and didn't know how to uh, create a new Snapchat emoji, but they knew why Daniel wouldn't defile himself with the king's diet? 
Wouldn't that be amazing? I wandered far away from God until late in my 17th year when God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, drew me out of darkness into His light. And in my bedroom, I had a Bible given to me when I was eight years old in my primary class by Millie Robinette. And God put His fire in my heart at an altar of a Wesleyan church. And I went home and I picked up that Bible that had been sitting on my dresser for all those years. And I picked it up with the fire of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And it was like Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone. And that's why I call it Excalibur. Because it saved my life. It was like I started to realize that God had given me a sword and my destiny was beginning. And I would lay in bed as a 17-year-old kid and scriptures would start coming out of my mouth that I didn't even know I knew. That I would, by the chapter, I was 17 years old. I hadn't been taught anything. I hadn't been in any discipleship class. The only thing I had was I'd have been a little Baptist boy that got the scriptures in his heart and his subconscious that I didn't even know were there. And they started flowing out of my mouth like a river because the author made his home on the inside of me. Will somebody teach this book to some kids so we can change Western civil. I didn't say this city. I said Western. I'm about changing the world. With this book, I don't care who's leading or who's going to lead or who used to lead. I don't care who the next president's going to be. I don't care what they say. If Wycliffe could get it done when they chased him around England and the western parts of Europe, we can get it done with the doors wide open. Our future depends upon seeing this book as an unshakable foundation. Our future depends upon seeing this book as a sword that leads us to our destiny in the kingdom of God. This book is not about me. It's about the king and the call that the king has placed upon me. Jesus said, and he's proven it, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall never pass away. Would you stand? Lord, God, I've got to throw one more thing at you. I don't care what time it is. I've got to tell you this. I've got four books by this man. His name is Watchman Nee. His real name, that's his pen name. His real name was Nee Tusheng. He was, he was from China. He died in China. He was converted to Christ in 1920 as a college student. They began to preach. There's a state church that's allowed to be Christian as long as they're not Christian much in China. And then there's the real church. The fastest growing churches in the world right now are in Iran and China. Not the state churches, the real one. 
Watchman Nee wrote many books. I have three of them. The Normal Christian Life, Sit, Walk, Stand. It's funny, on the back here it says you can get it for 50 cents. This book was published in 1968. This one here. It's called The Release of the Spirit. Watchman Nee was executed in a Chinese prison. The first thing they did was chopped his arms off so he couldn't write. So he began to talk and tell the soldiers and the prison guards, so they ripped his tongue out. And then they killed him. And you can buy his book in 1965 for $1.25. You see what I'm saying? I found this little thing about reading the Bible. This is from a man who had his tongue ripped out. His arms chopped off. It is beyond question that what we are determines what we get out of the Bible. How often man in his conceit relies on his unrenewed and confused mind to read it. The fruit is nothing but his own thoughts then. He does not touch the spirit of the word. But if he would expect to meet the Lord in the word, his life would be touched, but first it would be broken. We may think high of our cleverness, and God will be our great obstacle. Our own cleverness will never lead us to the thoughts of God unless we're broken. Says a man whose book that I have downstairs called Sit, Walk, and Stand, that I think about the fact that I had the audacity to even underline such a book with my own stupid hand and pen written by a man who didn't have any arms left. And I bought it for probably a dollar in college. A dollar. I told my college roommate, Clay Manus, one day when I just got all fired up like I am right now, and I was kind of terrified. I said, I'm really messed up right now. I said, what's wrong? I said, you know what? One day we're going to be in heaven, and Simon Peter's going to walk up and say, um, I watched you over the last three years on your live stream. Didn't have, didn't have a week or two you could have preached the seven chapters of my two letters. Six steps to this, nine steps to money, and 18 steps to marriage, and how to be feeling good about yourself. Didn't have any time for John. How many more are going to be in that 11% that said, I gave, I gave the living sword of eternity a good twice a month. May the Holy Spirit of God Gently, but deeply. Cause us to hear the echoes of the dead who burned with a fire that allowed them to walk through one to place this book in your life. 
Holy Spirit of God, I am so unworthy to even preach it compared to those men or to assume authority that they had. But you have what you have in the modern day church and I bow in my heart before you and the saints who watch in all humility with a thankful and deeply appreciative heart that in your providence you got this book to this land of darkness. And may the light of the glory in this book torch our lives again. In Jesus' name, amen.